0: We're going to read God's Word together, and I'm going to read from the Psalms, from Psalm 139, and then we'll be reading after that from 1 Corinthians. Psalm 139 is really a meditation, and I'm not going to be preaching directly on it. And I say that for one reason. Sometimes we, we listen to the reading, trying to work out what it's saying before we go to the sermon. But I would invite you to listen to this as a reading as a meditation. It, it, maybe you want to follow the words on the screen. It, maybe you just want to close your eyes and hear the words as God speaks, and we reflect where we are before Him. Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and You know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, You perceive my thoughts from afar. where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in the depth, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Amen. And then we're going to read as we've been working through Paul's letter to the Corinthians from 1 Corinthians 6, a very different change of tone from the same God in the same Word chapter 6, verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You see, food for the stomach and stomach for the food, but God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not made for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do not you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I take the members of Christ and, and unite them with, with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies? are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, as we come to meditate on Your Word, this morning. We ask for Your presence to be with us. We ask for this to be both for our encouragement and our shaping, that our whole life might be blessed and belong to You. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we ask it. Amen. I want to start with a, a song. It's all right, I'm not going to sing. The Hokey Cokey. Know the Hokey Cokey? I was going to get the choir to sing the Hokey Cokey this morning. That, that'd been good. How does a hokey cokey go? You put, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Go for it. You put your left leg, uh, arm in, you put your left arm out, you put your left. Yeah. yeah. So you put your left arm in first, and then you put your right arm in, and then your left leg, and your right leg, and then the last verse. Anybody? You put your whole self in, you put your whole self out, you put your whole self in, and you shake it all about, and you do the hokey-cokey, and that's what it's all about. See, yeah, I love that banner. What if the hokey-cokey is what it's all about? Well, hopefully, as we think about God's Word this morning, we will know that there's more to life than the hokey Um, although I wonder sometimes that that's how the world feels. Here's a question. Which verse of the hokey koki are we on? Are we on, I put my right arm in, my right arm out, my right arm in, I shake it all about? Or are we saying, I put my whole self in, and maybe even I don't take my whole self out? And that's one of the questions. We, we came down to, to that at, at, the, at the beginning with when we were talking about keeping a dog, is, is it for life or just for Christmas? Is it all-encompassing or uh, is it just a little bit? A story uh, I remember being told about a pig and a chicken. No, sorry. Yeah, a pig and a chicken. This is when you do stories off the top of your head. A pig and a chicken, and they were walking down the road, and they were doing what pigs and chickens do as they walk down the road. They were having a conversation, and they were having a conversation about the terrible demise of the great British breakfast. And the chicken is saying, it's dreadful that the great British breakfast is gone. We don't have the role that we used to have in the life of the nation. And the pig looks at the chicken and says to the chicken, it's all right for you. You only have to make a contribution. I have to make a sacrifice." Are we pigs or chickens? Are we wholesale folk or is it just a little bit of life? Corinthian church that we have been looking at over these days was a church that had been founded by Paul just a few years before. And therefore, it's a church where people were having to think for the first time what Christianity was about. You know, one of the things that we often see in churches is we've never done it that way before. But see, in the church in Corinth, you could see that about absolutely everything. Because nobody had done anything before as a Christian church, had never been a Christian church before, and so they're trying to work everything out. And it's a really exciting church. It's in a it's in a busy, affluent port city, and it's a multicultural church, and it's doing very well. Its numbers are beginning to grow from a very small number to not a great big number, but it's certainly getting bigger um, month by month and year by year. It's got young people, it's got old people, it's got rich people, it's got. It's got poor people. It's got great preachers that are coming along like Apollos to teach them, and they're out there. they are think this is fantastic. Their worship is, is really spiritual. In fact, the Holy Spirit is moving in their, in their congregational worship. They were what we would term today a charismatic church. The gifts of the Spirit were moved, an element am- among them. There was vibrance in their worship. But as you read through the letter to the, first, to the Corinthians, you begin to discover that as Paul looks at them, he sees that all is not well. Because despite everything that's going on in their worship, the gospel is not touching huge aspects of their life. You know, when they come together, he complains, and we've been looking at this in in, in the past weeks, that they're status-seeking. They're wondering about who's up, who's down, they're looking at who's important, who's not important. They're dividing into factions. In fact, we saw last week they're even going to court and suing each other or fighting about whatever else it is. And, it's, and, and what he's saying is the gospel has not transformed your lives. You're going to church, but it's not transformed who you are and what you're about. You're taking the same standards that people outside the church take in, in your life together. You are, he says, worldly, not spiritual, even though you're doing all the spiritual stuff. And what he does in 1 Corinthians, and this, this is the theme that goes right through the letter, he takes them to the story of Jesus. That's always a good place to go when we're not sure what to do. He takes us back to the story of Jesus, and he particularly takes us to the cross. And the story that Paul tells in the first chapters that shapes all the practical stuff that comes later is this, that in the cross, the most powerful most worthy, most important man in the whole of the universe, the most innocent person that has ever lived, chose utter humiliation and weakness and rejection. And what Paul is saying is that is God's new plan for the world. That is the new reality in Jesus Christ that should shape everything that we are, And God is calling a community together round this upside-down, roundabout, impossible, unworldly idea. That God gave Himself in sacrifice for us, and so we live 100% for Him in this upside-down world. And it is to touch every part of our being. Now, when we get to chapter 6, He's going to talk in the passage we read about what that means for sex and sexual and romantic relationships. In in fact, in chapter 7, he'll go on to look at marriage. But it's just one of the areas Paul's going to talk about. He's going to talk about food. He's going to talk about money. He's going to talk about every aspect of life, life in the church as you live together, life out. He's going to talk about life after death. He's going to talk about all sorts of things, but it's always coming back to what does this story of Jesus mean for the whole of life. Now, I know that sometimes when we start to talk about sexual relationships in the church, there's a grimace. And I, do you ever get people saying to you, oh, you these Christians, all they do is bang on about sex? Have you had that? You had folks saying things like that to you? I, and I, I actually wonder because actually it's not true. First of all, I have to say I've preached very few sermons on this topic over the years. The other reason it's not true, and I think it's a bit of a nonsense, is when society tells us we talk about sex the whole time, I just want to say, really? And you don't? You know, all you have to do is turn on, I was going to say the radio, but nobody listens to the radio anymore, do they? But all you have to do is listen to music. What is the number one theme of all music that people listen to today? What's it about? Sex and romantic relationships, isn't it? It's not the only theme, but it's definitely, if you were to do the top 10 themes, it would be number one. And before we say, oh, that's young people today, if I asked you, what was the top 10 theme 10 years ago? What was the top 10 theme in the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or the 40s or whatever your generation was, it's always been that way. And when you start to think about it, it's not just that. From the Beatles to the Spice Girls to Taylor Swift, it doesn't matter. And it's not just in music. It's in the arts as well. From Shakespeare to Netflix, what's the number one theme? doesn't make any difference where you are. Newspapers, magazines, what's the number one story that sells? It's always the same thing. And before we get really, oh gosh, the world's always talking about sex and it's just the church that's different. Actually, there's a reason for that, and the reason for it is it's a huge part of life. From the moment we are conceived, we're talking about this. Through puberty and working out who we are as gendered, sexualized people, In that anxiety about relationships, whether we're in them or don't have them, or what people expect of us, that's there right through life. In child rearing. In Gender relationships, men and women, and all of the things that go with that. In anxiety, particularly in our day-to-day about sexual identity and gender identity, it's absolutely everywhere. So, if we believe in a God who made the whole human being and made the whole of the world and is interested in every part of it, why wouldn't there be a fair amount in the Bible about it? Jesus talks about it. And before folk thinks he was obsessed, I will point out that the other topic he talks about even more than that is money because that's a huge part of life as well. But the Bible is, is real to the lives that we live, and so Paul addresses it in this chapter. He begins by quoting some things, and we're not quite sure what he's at here, but he, he's probably quoting things that people in Corinth were saying, and perhaps people in Corinth were saying in response to Christian teaching on sexual issues. Verse 12 he seems to be quoting them as they say, well, I have the right to do anything. Now, in some ways, this is about ancient Corinth and how they felt about it, but it sounds so modern, doesn't it? There are no moral rules restricting me. I can do what I want. I will make my own decisions, and nobody will tell me what to do or what is right or what is wrong does that sound like ancient teaching? Or does that pretty much sound like people today? I'm in charge. Now, notice how Paul responds to the teaching of his day, and I think sometimes we we need to do that as well in our day. He doesn't just say, no, you're wrong. Let me tell you what the Bible says, and here's the rules. He says, actually, there's some truth in what you're saying, but there's more to say. And I think sometimes in our day we, we, we need to to be able to say that about the world around us today. We, we, we can say, well, there are things that we can agree with. The liberation of of women in relationships. absolutely fantastic. But there's other things where we can start to question before we talk about a Christian response. For instance, Our our society today says that there are are no restrictions. People should be able to decide for themselves. But actually, in its own terms, before we come to to say anything about that, there are contradictions in that as we're seeing more and more. Because the problem with saying people can do what they want, this was true in ancient Rome and it's true today, is if you are a man and you are powerful and you're used to getting what you want, that type of ideology suits you just fine. But it has a cost, and it has victims, and it always has. And that is something that certainly our world today is is discovering. The second thing that Paul says here is, after saying to to the, the Corinthians, well, okay, that might be true, but not everything is good for you, The second part, he says, I I will not be mastered by anything. And what he means by that is, you can say you've got freedom, but actually, you end up being a slave to expectations. So, young folk think that they're free to to have relationships, but sometimes they're under pressure from their peers to be doing the same things that everyone else is doing. Or folk in their, their Later in life, they're making decisions about where they are, and there's pressure from parents and grandparents. Where's the grandchildren? Are you not married yet? We've all had things like that perhaps said to us at some point in life, and so we are not as free as we think we are. And so, freedom can bring its own new slavery. Society begins to tell us what we can do. We think we're free, but we're actually not. The next thing we find people saying in Corinth is this: food for the stomach and stomach for the food, God will destroy them both. And now, what it seems to be that people are saying is, look, it's just an appetite. Sleep with who you want, do with what you want. It's not important, it's nothing to do with your spiritual life. It's just, you know, like eating food. It's fine. But passing. And what Paul wants to say through this chapter is something that is, is real and and, and and folk know it psychologically is actually these things have huge consequences. And lots of people who think today that they're free to do what they want, they suddenly find that there are psychological and social and huge consequences. So, what does Paul do? Well, it's interesting, and this is often the case in the New Testament, it's not what people think he would do. You'd have thought and sometimes the way Christians speak, you would have thought that Paul would have said, no, here's the rules from God. This is how you're supposed to do things, and if you don't do that, you're a sinner. Bang, there you are. Ten commandments are relationships. You know, I, I remember as a, as a young person, that there was a book that was given to us as young Christians that started to say, well, this is how far you can go, and you couldn't go more than three foot from a, from a girl and all the rest of it. But that's not how Paul comes in. He tells a story and we can see the story in this passage. It's actually a little bit confusing because he moves back and forward. But basically, he's telling the story of Jesus. And he's taking us through things that we're very familiar with as Christians, the story of the cross, the story of the resurrection, and the story of the coming of the Holy Spirit into our lives. And what he's saying is this, in all of this. What we do with our bodies, and particularly our sexual side of that, but it's applicable to everything in life, ought to be shaped by what we believe about the Lord Jesus Christ. The story that we believe shapes the people that we are. I'm going to take them in a little bit of a different order, because Paul starts with the resurrection, which is a little bit strange. It's a hard argument to follow, but hopefully I can simplify it for you. What Paul basically says is when Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't rise as a spirit. He rose in a body. Now, if you think about that, think about these the, two the, the stories, the, the gospel stories that we're familiar with, it doesn't answer all the questions about the resurrection, but it does tell us an awful lot about Jesus eating fish, everywhere. And it tells us about Thomas touching. And what the New Testament seems to be saying to us very clearly when it doesn't answer lots of other questions is Jesus rose in a body. And why does that matter? Because when we talk about what happens to us, what the hope of the Christian is after we die, it is the hope of the resurrection. Our hope is not that we will leave our bodies, go and be spirits, and float on clouds. You, know, I, you sometimes have that image, isn't it? All these people up there floating on clouds, sort of disembodied spirits. And I look at that and I think that's awful. Actually, what we proclaim at every single funeral is that we believe in the resurrection to eternal life. And that is somehow like the resurrection of Jesus. Paul will talk about this a bit more in chapter 15. When we rise at the end of time, we will have bodies. Not this body, but a different body. And that matters because. It means that bodies matter to God. And it actually shouldn't surprise us. When God made the world at the beginning, He made a physical planet, not a disembodied spiritual realm. He made a physical planet. He put people on it, and He put people on it in bodies, and He said, it is good. So when God at the end of time takes away all the pain and all the suffering and all the sin and makes a world that is perfect, what do you think it will be like? would it not be physical? And that is the whole revelation of the resurrection. Why does that matter? Because it means that there is no division between the spiritual and the physical. You cannot say, ach, that's just physical stuff, and we are interested in spiritual stuff. And by the way, this is why what we do with our bodies matters, because somehow these bodies are connected with the bodies that we That's a bit of a mystery, but it's somehow there. It's also one of the reasons, by the way, this is not just about sexual relationships, why it matters what we do with the planet. I had one Christian say to me one time, what does it matter about the environment? If everybody's going to heaven and the world's going to burn up someday, who cares as long as we get people to go to heaven? And I had to say, God made a physical world and he said it's good. God says he's going to make a new heaven and a new earth. It's going to be a physical world and it's going to be good. And somehow, therefore, the physical world matters to our faith and our hope. That's why Christians should be at the forefront of caring about the climate. That's number one. Number two is this the Holy Spirit. Paul says here, Your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit who you have received from God. Now, here's the thing he will say this earlier about the whole of the church. The church, together, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And now he's saying, individually, our bodies are. Now, we have to think about this in terms of what the Holy Spirit comes to do. The Holy Spirit is sent upon the church on the day of Pentecost, primarily that Christians would be empowered to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes primarily to transform us, that we might show the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So, they might be the marks of our living together, but also the marks of us living this out in the world. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, in the ancient world, temples were really important because the divine lived in them. And one of the things you had to do was respect the temple if you were going to respect the presence of the divine within it. That's why we need to look after the church, and I don't mean the building. We need to look after the fellowship because God's presence is among us. And it's also one reason why we have to look after our bodies and what we do with them because it's in our bodies that God, by His Holy Spirit, is transforming us that we might live like Jesus. So what we do matters. We are being transformed to be different. And the last place Paul takes this story is, is to the cross. You are bought at a price. You're not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. Now, here's a number of things that we can take away from this as we begin to think about this whole area in terms of the cross. The first is this. Jesus died for you. And that means you belong to Him. And that means the attitude that the Corinthian Christians started with, with, I have rights and I have freedoms and I can do anything. No, no, no. Jesus died for you and you are to live for Him. You're not your own. This isn't about just me doing what I want seems good to me. This is about the Lord Jesus Christ who so loved me and He gave Himself for me that I live for Him. That I give my life for him. And that I begin to think about all the decisions I make in terms of following him. That's why Paul has said earlier in this passage, the Lord for the body and the body for the Lord. We, we, we might equally say our bank balances for the Lord. We might equally say our lives for the Lord, our lips for the Lord, our bodies for the Lord. Everything that we do, we should begin to see. What does the Lord Jesus want me to do? How does He want me to live in this field? It's not a case of saying, well, I can, I can live the life I want and as long as I go to church and do the spiritual stuff on the side of it and I, I don't do the bad things that I know I shouldn't do. Actually, following the Lord Jesus, and Paul will talk about this later when he talks about marriage, he will say, you know, it's okay to get married, that's fine, but maybe, maybe that's not what God is calling you to. And so, your decisions about whether to get married or not are about what the Lord is wanting, if you're going to follow Him because He has died for you. And the other thing, about, again, about this is, as we think about the cross, it's also thinking about Jesus as a model. Now, that doesn't mean we should all be single any more than it means we should all be uh, first-century Galileans and wear sandals, Um, but it does mean the model of somebody who didn't say, these are my rights this is my enjoyment, but actually said, I am serving my Father, and I'm giving myself for others. And that's at the heart of this as well. He gave up, and so we give up. But something else that I think is incredibly valuable in this field, and I'm sure psychologists who work with people who have suffered um, from abuse or have been as as some folks seem to get into traps of one bad relationship after another is this. You were bought at a price. You were bought at the most costly price that there could ever be, the death of Jesus Christ giving His blood on a cross for you. That means you are valued by God. And all the psychologists will tell us one of the reasons that people get into such trouble in areas of relationships is because they think they are worthless. They think they don't deserve any better. And here comes the living God and says, you are mine. You are my child. I love you. I value you. I gave my life for you, and that begins to transform how we see ourselves servants. Yes, but loved. The demand that we give 100% for Him points to something else, His forgiveness. Because here is another point about the cross. The cross in every aspect of life doesn't just come and say, well, Jesus gave everything for you, so you must give everything for Him, and if you don't do that, because as He gave everything for you, He knew the failure that you were. And all of us fail in relationships, some very publicly and and it's obvious, and others of us, well, we could tell you some stories. And all of us fail in what's on our hearts and, and how we use our bodies in all sorts of ways. But when we come to the cross, we come to not just the demand that our whole life is 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 lived for him, but we come at the same point to the place of forgiveness. The place of the one who said, Whatever you have done, however you have failed, I have loved you so much that I have given myself for you. And that's one of the reasons why, in sometimes the way the church talks to the world about sexual ethics, is not helpful. Not because. It's wrong because there is a right and there is a wrong and Paul is also in this talking about the creation order for marriage and a whole lot of other things that I would want to affirm. But sometimes the way the church talks about this is harsh and unforgiving and has no place and ostracizes and you've broken the rules so you're out of here and we're not having that and all of that. Sometimes today the church plays culture wars and our society is doing that as well. I watched the prime minister this last week, making statements about gender. Statements I agreed with, but at the same time as he was making them, I thought they're made to score points and get the base to clap. They're not made with love and compassion. They're not made with forgiveness. And that needs to be at the heart of it. Sometimes Christians are going to have to say there is a right and a wrong, but it has to be said from the place of the cross where we come and we say we are broken too. And there is always forgiveness, and there is huge compassion from God. And I love the fact that Paul ends at the cross by saying, You were bought at a price. That is the call to different living. But it is the call at the same time that comes from the one who is giving himself for us. It is never cheap, it is never condemning. It always comes with that amazing grace. To Stand back a little bit from all of this because some of us will go out and wonder, well, that didn't all apply to me. I I would want to say this, that story of the cross, of the resurrection hope that we have of the Spirit sent to transform us to be holy people living in the world. That story should be the story that runs through every part of our life. All of it. Work, career, ambitions, relationships, hobbies, pleasure, enjoyment, praise, worship, business, presbytery meetings, every single one shaped by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what it means to see the whole of the gospel for the whole of life. We put the whole self in to the whole story of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. Amen.